Uh, many of you know that, that I've said on several occasions, one of my favorite television shows, I guess was now since it was canceled this season, uh, was the television show House, uh, which is about a socially inept, uh, Vicodin-addicted, arrogant, cranky doctor who solves impossible medical mysteries. Now, House, if you've ever watched the, ser- the series, is skeptical about a lot of things. He's skeptical about human nature, rightly. Uh, he's also skeptical, though, about God. And in one particular episode, he asks this question, why does God get all the credit when the good stuff happens, but he never gets blamed for the bad stuff? I'm the one fixing people. It's not a miracle. God shouldn't get the credit when someone gets well. I should. Or did I mention he's arrogant? Um, House is saying, now, look, I don't see God doing anything. I'm the one that did this, so why don't you all quit giving him all the credit and give the credit to the guy who actually did something? Now, your first reaction to that might be, well, how can someone fail to see the hand of God when someone who is obviously near death gets well? Can't they see God's hand in that? Uh, Others of us might say, I actually kind of agree with House. Uh, I've, I've got the same problem he does. I mean, where was he at the movie theater in Colorado the other night? I don't, I don't see God's hand. And the reality is, whether you're the most ardent skeptic or the most devout believer, uh, we all struggle with the invisibility of God sometimes. You know, we don't get to see him parting the Red Sea. Uh, We don't get to see Jesus walking around and turning a a few loaves of bread and and fish into enough to feed uh, a multitude. We don't see those things. We have prayers that that seem to remain unanswered for long periods of time. We face these really difficult and and gut-wrenching life events, and and we don't know what to do with those. And, And we wonder... Although we never admitted to church because we've been trained that church is a place where we cover up all our struggles and we're not honest about them. Uh, but, but what we really wonder is, God, are you, are you really there? Do you really care? Uh, are you still at work in the world? Are you still at work in my life? Do you really care about me? Uh, the book of Esther, uh, which we're going to spend a few weeks in, addresses those types of questions. Now here's, I'm doing a lot of setup before we read this today, but, but, but here's what's going on. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament really quickly, uh, God has promised to judge his people because of their willful rebellion. He kept giving them chances, they kept blowing it, just seriously turning away from him. And so finally he brings judgment on them in 586 B.C., in the person of a foreign king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. All right, he, he rides into Jerusalem, uh, he destroys the city, and he carries God's people off into exile uh, in Babylon. Now here they are in Babylon, there's no temple, there are no sacrifices, there are no priests, there's no religion as they have thought of it, there's no Davidic king, and so they're just, they feel like they're on their own. But God had promised them that one day a remnant, a portion of those who were sent into exile, is actually going to be returned to Jerusalem. And that happens. Uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, 
eventually conquers the Babylonians, and then he uh, pronounces this edict so that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's what, if you want some Old Testament reading, that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. Jews going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. But everybody didn't go back. Did you know that? Everybody didn't go back. Uh, Some of the Jews actually remained where they were. Uh, Some of them stayed. And the book of Esther addresses their situation. These Jews who remained in a foreign land. Now, uh, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. All right, think about life. Uh, Imagine that you're living in a country far away from your home country. Uh, Imagine you're living in a country where you look at life very differently from the locals, uh, where none of your people are in positions of power or authority, where things might go your way and you might end up with a pretty good life, but if you got sideways with the wrong government official, you could just as easily uh, wind up in prison or, or losing your livelihood or whatever. And to top it all off, um, you were in this land, you're in this situation because of God's judgment. And while many of God's people have gone back, they've been restored, you're still there. You're not with God's people. You're not getting to see the temple be rebuilt and the sacrifice, sacrifices being restored. You're not a part of any of that. You didn't go back. So what does that mean for your relationship with God? Where do do you stand with him? Do you still matter? Does God still care about you in this foreign land? Uh, Or have you just been kind of thrown out the car window like an old piece of chewing gum? You know, where are you? What's going on? Now, if you think about it, you can see that in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, uh, if, if you're a believer, then you're in a similar situation today because Your real citizenship is not here in the United States. Your real citizenship is in heaven. Uh, We serve our country, yes, but at the end of the day, our real king is King Jesus. We love our neighbors, but even as we're doing that, it becomes painfully clear at times that that we're not looking at the world the same way uh, many of our neighbors are looking at at the world. Uh, And to top it all off, there are times when God seems strangely absent to us, doesn't he? And we wonder, where are you, God? Are you at work? Now, here's where this gets interesting, all right? To, to help us deal um, with living in these circumstances, with this invisible God, we're going to study a book, the book of Esther, where God is never mentioned. All right? This is a book in the Bible where God is never mentioned in the whole book. Now, why is that? Why would you have a book in the Bible where God doesn't get mentioned? I think the author is actually doing this on purpose to help us to see that God is work, at work behind the scenes. That even when we can't see him, Even when we're not seeing miraculous events take place, God is working through ordinary, everyday events 
to bring about his purposes. He might appear to be absent. You can't see him. You can't see how he's working. But he's not absent. And he is working. Uh, As one of the catechism questions we looked at months ago said, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God uh, is not absent. He may be unseen, but he's very much on the scene. And he hasn't forgotten about his people. So, with all that set up, this is God's word that we're about to read. Um, and actually, let me pray for us first, because I'm not going to read it all at once. I'm going to read a little bit and then talk about it as we go. So let me pray. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for time in your word. Uh, we give you thanks for this mysterious book of Esther. Uh, and we pray that you would uh, apply it to our lives now. Help us to see you uh, in the midst of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Esther, chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Now in the days of Ahusuerus, the Ahusuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahusuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to the edict, there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired." All right, we're going to take a break there. All right, the first person we meet here is King Ahusuerus. Uh, he's also known as King Xerxes. Ahusuerus or Xerxes. Ahusuerus is his Hebrew name, and the name actually doesn't mean anything in Hebrew, but if, if you spoke Hebrew and said Ahusuerus, it would be like us saying, it would sound to us like headache. So he's basically calling the guy King Headache, Okay. So Esther's a a humorous book. Um, This is King Headache. All right. Um, He ruled from India to Ethiopia. He ruled 127 provinces. Uh, It's said that a storm once destroyed a bridge that he had had built. And so it was across a river. And so he ordered his men to give the river, uh, not 127, he ordered his men to give the river 300 lashes. Because it destroyed his bridge. And then he had the heads of the engineers cut off who had designed the bridge. All right, we're not making that mistake again. It's quality control. Um, he, was, he was known for his wars uh, against the Greeks. Uh, one commentator speculated that this party 
is actually a big war council. So it's a let's party slash get ready to fight. Um, and it's not a small party with just a lot of close friends. It was a six-month party. Right? Who's up for that? Where Ahusuerus basically says, I'm the king. This is all my stuff. Uh, be impressed with me. Right? That was what six months of it was. And if you had been there, you would have been impressed with him. And then, as if six months isn't enough of this party, they, have, they tack on a feast uh, for another week. Seven more days of partying. And we're told that the wine is being served in golden vessels or goblets, and that each goblet was different. All right, this isn't like three of us at a party. This is a huge party, golden vessels, uh, and they're all different. They're not red solo cups. They're not, they're not the cups you pick up after the, the Clemson or the South Carolina game. These are all golden vessels, and they're all different. All right, Clemson people, talk to Ipte about that. See if you can get that worked out um, this fall. Now, what's the point that the author's trying to make here? What, are, what, what should we take away to start with? He really is just saying Zer, uh, Ahusuerus or Xerxes was the big dog. All right? He was the man. He was impressive. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He's somebody you didn't mess with. But... Maybe he's not as impressive as he seems to be. All right, look, look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahusuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, and that's not I, it's like he worked for Apple. How did that, how did that, it's, it's a foot, oh, it's a foot, okay, okay. Anyway, uh, Bigtha and, um, uh, yeah, the next person, Zathar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahusuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So, <clears throat> all right, the king wants to parade his trophy wife around in front of all his drunk guests. Right, this is duckly as I can put this. And, and she says, no, I'm not going, King Sicko. Uh, I, I'm not going out there to parade around in front of your friends. And so here's this great and powerful king who rules uh, 127 provinces. When he says, jump, People say, how high? And his wife says, no, I'm not going along with that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not coming out there. All right. So uh, verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina. John Paul, you're reading scripture next week. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Mersina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahusuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, 
not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they all will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. As they shake their heads. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." Um, no foreign language thing going on there. Anyway, so so what do you do? What do you do when you're the king? You're the most powerful man in the world, and your wife doesn't show up when you ask her to. You know, everybody's sitting there, kind of punching each other. Man, she ain't coming out here. And and the king's getting increasingly embarrassed that his his wife hasn't showed up. He's getting mad. So what do you do? Well, you you get the wise men together, all right, to figure out what to do. And what do they do? Well, they, they blow the whole thing out of proportion, and they say, look, not only did the queen wrong the king, but she wronged all the people, all the princes and all the people, because all the women are going to hear about this, and none of them are going to obey their husbands anymore. All right? And this is kind of like when, when one husband does something dumb, all right, you know how this goes, and then other women hear about it, and suddenly all the women are mad at all their husbands. Well, y'all know how this works. Like all the guys are shaking their head. We're all in trouble because of something he did. Um, this this kind of thing. That's what they think is going to happen. Uh, so the wise men uh, tell the tell the king issue a decree that says Vashti's out. She can't come in your presence, and you're going to get a new queen, a, a, a better model. So this will make sure that none of the other women under your rule copy Vashti. They're not going to rebel against your husband. Now, all right, look what's happened here. Uh, this, what should have been kind of a domestic dispute, this, this should have been taken care of in-house, is now this national crisis, and you've got advisors scurrying around trying to figure out what to do. You have laws being written. You have letters being sent out uh, as, as if husbands were going to be able to banish their wives anyway if this happened to them. And, and the end result is that more people hear about this than if the king had just let everybody sober up, apologize to his wife the next day, and moved on with it. Now everybody sees what's happened. And so here's the great king. He rules from sea to shining sea, and now he's issuing this decree to try to get wives to submit their husbands because his wife didn't obey him. Now, here's what you need to see here. 
the writer of Esther is making fun of King Ahasuerus. He's making fun uh, of his court. You know the, the story from when you're a kid of uh, the emperor's new clothes, where the emperor thinks he's wearing this fancy, uh, wonderful, expensive outfit when really he's walking up and down the street not wearing anything at all. Remember that story? The author of Esther here is saying, the king doesn't have any clothes. Uh, Xerxes, Ahusuerus, for all his might, for all his power, he's just bumbling around. He's just bumbling around. Now, uh, that brings us to some observations, right? Uh, How might we apply this in our own lives? First of all, the author is reminding us that we shouldn't be overly impressed by or intimidated by human wealth, human position, human power. That as mighty as this king might be, as mighty as any king might be, um, there's still people. He's still a human being. He still has flaws. He's not invincible. So on the one hand, we learn uh, don't be intimidated by human power, by human strength. On the other hand, we learn don't waste your life trying to be that person. Uh, Nickelback has a song, and and I know everyone derives musical coolness from hating Nickelback. I know how that works. Um, But but in the song, uh, the chorus says, Because we all just want to be big rock stars and live in hilltop houses driving 15 cars. We're so easily impressed with uh, celebrity, with status, with with wealth. And while we may not want to to be them, there's a lot about that lifestyle that we're like, I wish I could have maybe just just that, just just a little bit of that. Um, And often... These people we so badly want to be like, they're like Xerxes. They're like a Hoosers. They're not all they're cracked up to be. Uh, I, remember, I remember a pastor who had done a lot of marriage counseling telling me one time, um, some of the most beautiful people have some of the most messed up lives. He said, I don't have a lot of ugly people coming in here to see me. Um, but some of the most beautiful people have some of the most messed up lives. So we shouldn't be overly awed by beauty, by accomplishment, by power. We shouldn't be all overly awed by it, overly impressed by it, or overly driven to get that for ourselves, because it's, it's often not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, secondly here, as impressive as King Ahasuerus is, and, and as much as he tries to exercise control over his kingdom and over his life, he's not really in control. He's not really in control. Uh, God is the real king. God is the one who is working behind the scenes. And you'll see this more as the book goes on. Uh, but why does... Ahasuerus just happened to call his wife to come out. Why does she just happen to refuse? Why does he just happen to involve all of his advisors? Why do they turn a domestic dispute into a national crisis? Why do they horribly overreact? Uh, 
Why does he banish Vashti uh, and issue a decree to find another queen? Ahushua has had his reasons. His royal advisors had their reasons. Vashti had her reasons for her reaction. But above and beyond all that, God had his reasons. See, God was, was at work doing something much bigger. And what he's doing, he's working things out so that Esther, and we'll, we'll be introduced to her soon, but so that Esther can be put in a position where she can actually um, serve to rescue, to help to rescue God's people. See, even though God is nowhere to be seen, and we've got these seemingly random events, he hasn't abandoned his people, and he's at work, even though it may not look like it, yet, in the book of Esther. It may not look like it yet in your life right now. Uh, I've told this story before, and I think when I tell a story twice, I finally realize I've told it twice, so forgive me. Uh, but, but when I was in seminary, I had hopes of, of working with uh, Reformed University Fellowship. It's our denomination's campus ministry. But nothing was really materializing along those lines. Uh, but kind of out of the blue, I just happened to get an invitation to, to um, interview for a job with RUF at the College of Charleston. And it was kind of an interesting situation. They'd really already made up their mind, but they wanted to bring some other candidates in to make sure. So I interviewed for this position, and I, I didn't get the job. Well, uh, while I was there, I just happened to meet a man by the name of Rod Mays. And some of you know where this is going already. My, my last semester in seminary, I didn't know what I, where I was going to wind up working still. And the seminary is hosting a, a youth conference, uh, training youth interns, something like that. And I walk into the meeting to go to this conference, and Rod Mays just happens to be sitting there. He just happened to decide to come to Charlotte that day and go to this conference. And we start talking. He says, why don't you come? to Greenville and interview, we're hiring a youth intern. So I go, I got a job at his church. And while I was working at his church, uh, Western Carolina Presbytery decided they wanted to start RUF at Appalachian State. And I started talking to them about that. But there was some concern in RUF circles about whether there really was going to be enough money available to get this ministry off the ground. Well, the man who had to make the final call on this was... Rod Mays, the man who had hired me at Woodruff Road. Now, why was he getting to make this decision? Because nine months after he hired me, he quit his job as pastor at Woodruff Road to become the coordinator for Reform University Fellowship. So suddenly I was actually working in the office of the man who had to decide whether we were going to go and start this ministry or not. As we were getting ready to, to make the move to Boone, we really weren't in position to buy a house but it just so happened that the bank where Susan worked, we had a connection to the president of the bank there. And it just so happened that where did he go to school? Appalachian State University. And he was a believer. And so we were able to buy a house when otherwise we wouldn't have been able to. And I say all that, um, you, you could share your own stories like that where God is at work. Uh, sometimes it's behind the scenes where we can't even see it. But he's at work uh, in the lives of his people. So remember that when, when life isn't 
making any sense. When you're just kind of ready to, to throw up your hands in despair, God doesn't abandon his people. He's working according to his purposes. Now, uh, last thing I want us to notice here, and you've got to think big picture Bible for this. Uh, notice the contrast uh, between the way that King Xerxes treats his bride and the way Jesus treats his bride, the church. King Ahasuerus and his bride, King Jesus and his bride, the church. Ahasuerus used his wife for his own pleasure, and when she doesn't please him, he gets rid of her. He throws her away, and he goes looking for another trophy wife. Uh, King Jesus gave up his life for a bride who wasn't beautiful, for a bride that's filled with sin, for a bride that continues to run away from him. Jesus sought his bride out, and he loved her sacrificially when we were yet sinners. Not when we were beautiful, not when we cleaned ourselves up. When we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. You know, if, if you were standing there the day Jesus was crucified and he's, he's dying on the cross, you might very well have thought, where's God in all this? This is like the first chapter of Esther. I don't, I don't see God anywhere. I don't see him doing anything. I see this guy that's supposed to rescue us. He's dying here right in front of us. And he would have been right there in front of you dying. Dying to bring about salvation for his people. When you couldn't understand it at all. God was at work. Uh, Now, husbands, let me just say this real quick. I think it's uh, painfully obvious whose example we're to follow. Uh, The call to husbands is not to, to use your wife for your own pleasure not to to make demands of them in in the name of submission, but it's to give up our lives for our brides. And guys, how are you giving up your life life for your bride? Is 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 there a tangible way that you're doing that? Are you giving up your golf? Are you giving up your your nights out with the guys? What are you what are you giving up? Are you giving up your time? You know, you're, as a husband, you're not called to demand submission from your wives, but you're called to love them sacrificially in such a way that they will gladly follow your leadership. Uh, whose steps are you following, husbands? Are you following in the footsteps of King Ahasuerus? Are you following in the footsteps of King Jesus? Well, let me, let me tie this up. What do we... What do we walk away with from this? Uh, Number one, human power isn't all that it seems to be. Don't be overly impressed with it. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't crave it. On the other hand, King Jesus is the one with real power. And he's working all things according to his will, even when we can't see, even when he seems absent, even when we can't understand what he's doing. We also see that King Jesus exercises power by giving up power. He exercises power by giving up his life for his bride, 
the church. And so what does that call us to do then if we know these things? It calls us to trust King Jesus. Uh, Instead of me trying to get power so that I can control my life, so that I can control what people think about me, so that I can control what people do to me, Jesus calls me to give up power and to give up control and to love the people he's put around me, trusting that he's at work in my life and in their life, even when I can't see it. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word, and we give you thanks for your hand, uh, for your work in our lives. And Father, some of us can sit and we really can trace uh, how you have worked and where you have brought us, and we give you thanks for that. Uh, And Father, others of us uh, are at a place where we're having a hard time seeing that right now. Uh, We're really baffled by your invisibility. So Father, would you help us to trust you, to trust that you love us, to trust that you have given your son for us, to trust that you're for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.